You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Second Samuel causes us to love a good rags to riches sort of story. And I think one of the reasons for that is it appeals to our pride, doesn't it? We like to, to marvel at the capacity and the, how capable we are to turn our lives around, to come from nothing and to become something, to become a success, become famous, become influential, become wealthy. So you might finish that degree that you've been working on for so many years and you know, we can rather stupidly think, well, I earned this degree. I worked hard. It's mine. It's my accomplishment. Or when we get that promotion at work, we tend to reason, well, look what I did. All my hard work that I've been laboring, it's paid off. Look how skilled and valuable to my company that I've proven to be. Or when we complete that tedious home renovation project, man, who needs contractors? Look how smart I am. All I need is a YouTube video and some nails and 500 hours of sweat, and I can do the same job. You know, we're all prone to this sort of self-reliance and thus self-exaltation. As we've seen David, it's been its own sort of rags-to-riches sort of story, hasn't it? He's endured years of hardship from being relentlessly pursued by King Saul in the wilderness to tirelessly working to unite all of Israel under his leadership. And now he is finally coming into the kingship, king over all of Israel. After Saul's death, you remember last week, Judah, the tribe, made him king. But with the suspicious death of Abner and Ishbosheth, it seemed to have taken around four to five years after Ishbosheth's assassination until David was able to unite all of Israel under his throne. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to see David's kingdom begin in unity, and it's going to blossom in strength and success. He will unite all of Israel together. He will conquer a fortress and establish a new capital. He will even get respect from Gentile kings who pay him tribute. He will build a house. His family will grow in number. He humiliates the Philistines by conquering them. David's strength and power is going to be exhibited in his growing and expanding kingdom. So much so that we might expect him to begin to beam with pride. Look at what I've done. At least that's what we might do. But David refuses to exalt himself. But instead, he chooses the path of humility. He chooses raucous praise to the God who has made him king. David's humility, after all, is what makes him a man after God's own heart. David has gone from the shepherd field in Bethlehem to being king over all of Israel. But as David considers his life, he finds no reason for self-exaltation. All praise goes to his Lord. Let me ask you that question. When you succeed in life, are you quick to give God the glory? Or do you try to seize it for yourself? As we begin our study of 
David's reign, let's begin to see all of Israel come together under his rule. Let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, Hebron, and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us, led, led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became, began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. What happened in that time between Ishbosheth's assassination and all the tribes gathering together now here at Hebron to make David king? We're not entirely sure. But we do know that the tribes came to David. I think it's an important point. They approach David now and ask David to be their king. And at Hebron, David is anointed, not just for the first time or the second time, but now the third time as king. You might remember Samuel first anointed David as king in Bethlehem. He was anointed a second time after Saul's death when Judah made him their king. And now here a third time, all of Israel anoints David as their king. All of Israel recognized that David was the one whom the Lord had given and so each elders from each tribe decide to put their tribes underneath David's authority. And by doing so, they make some humbling concessions along the way. Indeed, you could even call it repentance, perhaps. First, they recognize their shared unity in David. They say, David, you are bone and flesh. They are from different tribes, but they share a family history. They are the people of God. There is a familial bond between them as the sons of Abraham. And so they desire to unite as one nation. Second, they submit to David's kingship based on the experience of history. Looking back over Saul's kingdom, they realize that, well, David was actually the one who led and brought out Israel. David achieved all the blessings and victory that came from Saul's kingdom and with the house of Saul now gone and eliminated, the tribes humble themselves and recognize the fact that they know that, that David is superior. He is better. He ought to be our king. But then thirdly, notice what they do. Thirdly, and most importantly, most repentantly, they affirm that the Lord had chosen David as king. Here is where we say this could be an act of repentance. They protested, they had resisted David's kingship, and now they acknowledge what the Lord had plainly revealed, a truth that they had been suppressing in their hearts. The Lord had said, they, this is what they tell David, you shall be king, be shepherd over my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so the tribes of Israel stop rejecting God's chosen king, and they humbly repent and submit to the leadership of God's king. The recognition of David's kingship, I think, mirrors our recognition of Jesus's kingship. Like all the tribes of Israel, we must repent and go to Jesus. We must bend our knees to him. We must submit to his gracious rule as God's chosen king. And so we come into the kingdom of God, not with pride, but with humility, the humility of repentance. 
To be a Christian is to put down your sword of rebellion and to bend your knee in service to the true king. But as we look at David's coronation, we see that it's draped in image of marriage, which is interesting. Now, Providence would have it that there was a coronation that happened yesterday in a little place called the United Kingdom. And so I woke up yesterday morning at five o'clock, intended to go for a run, but I found myself sucked in to watching the coronation and watching the pageantry and the majesty of seeing Charles be coronated as king. And if you watched it at all or watched some clips of it yesterday, you might be surprised how much of it seemed like a sort of marriage ceremony between the country and its king. Second Samuel chapter five reads very similarly. Do you... Israel, take this man, David, to be your king. Israel recognizes David as bone and flesh. Catch that language? This is language calling back to Genesis chapter 2 in the marriage between the first man and the first woman. They're becoming one flesh, if you will, here in this covenant. At Hebron, David and Israel enter into a covenant between king and people. David will be the head of Israel, who will nourish and cherish the people of God, and Israel will submit to their king. And so as King David is united to Israel in this covenantal ceremony at Hebron, so will King Jesus enjoy the marital union with his cleansed bride, the church, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The rapturous joy of king and covenant, marriage and commitment, they all find their consummation, don't they, in Jesus. So we're given a summary of verses four through five to provide us a little bit of the chronology of David's life and reign. He began to reign in Judah at 30 years old. He reigned for 40 years total, seven years and six months over just Judah with 33 years over all of Israel. And with the consummation of David's kingdom, it's at this point in redemptive history that we begin to eagerly grow excited over what will happen next. Because ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we have been awaiting since Genesis chapter 3. We've been waiting for the one born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Finally, it seems, right, that the Lord's covenantal promises to Abraham seem to all be coming together with David's kingship. The people of God are numerous. They're in the land of promise. Worldwide blessing was all that remained. And with God's king, David, on the throne, the future looks very promising. Israel was to be a new Adam, tending the land and as a nation of priests to the world. But Israel failed in that task during the time of judges. Why? Well, because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But now, after an extended detour with Saul, God has chosen his king. He's put a man on the throne who is after his own heart. And with God's chosen king over God's chosen people and God's chosen promised land, do we dare to wonder what might happen next? Has David come? Is he the serpent crusher that we've been waiting on? And with this wedding-like imagery, the king's coronation takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Here is a reset, if you will. Here is David, the new Adam, being united to his bride Israel and placed in the Garden of Promise. Will David succeed where Adam failed? Will the earth be filled and subdued for God's glory through David's kingdom? 
We know the rest of 2 Samuel. We know that David will fail just as Adam failed. Genesis 3 repeats itself in 2 Samuel chapter 11. However, what we see in these next few chapters and the chapters before us today is a glorious foreshadow of the blessing of God's kingdom. Because the opening reign of years of David's reign is almost messianic-like. Though David won't be the Messiah, he does anticipate the Messiah to come. Indeed, David will not just anticipate the Messiah, he will beget the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while Adam succumbs to the temptation in the Garden of Eden, and David, the new Adam, will succumb to temptation while looking over the Garden of Jerusalem, Jesus will resist temptation and be obedient in the Garden of Gethsemane. But until David's fall, we see here God's kingdom advance as the new Adam comes into his kingdom. But what do we expect David, the new Adam, to do as the king over united Israel? How will he tend the Garden of Israel? Well, he takes the shovel to the snake. David deals with the Jebusites, who continue to reside in a little city called Jerusalem, right in the middle of the land. And the Jebusites had lived in that city, going all the way back to Joshua's conquest. The city was so strong, so fortified, that Israel was unable to drive them out. So ever since Israel came into the promised land, they've lived rather awkwardly with some neighbors, fortified in the middle of Israel, in Jerusalem, in the middle of their promised land. King David is ready to finish the conquest. He is going to complete Joshua's work. It's time to get the snake infestation out of the land of Israel's garden. So Jerusalem was a strategic city for David to choose to unite the kingdom. Jerusalem was positioned strategically in the geographic center, resting on the border of Judah and Benjamin. So having Jerusalem as the nation's capital was a bridge-building gesture to Saul's tribe, Benjamin. Not only that, but Jerusalem, located on the western slope of the Kidron Valley, was a strategic geographical location for military defense. So David plans to take his capital from Hebron, and he's going to move it to Jerusalem for political and military strategy. But perhaps there's another reason David chooses Jerusalem to make his capital, and it's because of the city's importance in the life of Abraham. Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High, was king of Salem, or Jerusalem, back in Genesis 14. And it was to Melchizedek that Abraham paid his tithes. So because of this, Jerusalem has a religious significance, and he chose it not just to purge out the the Jebusites, not just because it was politically advantageous, and not just to pick a geographically defensible stronghold, but because of its religious significance to God's people. But if David wants Jerusalem, he's got to take it from the Jebusites. Let's read how he does that in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around 
uh, from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So as David goes to conquer Jerusalem, he lines up his men against battle, and the Jebusites begin to taunt David and his men. So since they were safely tucked away in the impenetrable fortress of Zion, they begin to jeer that our fortifications are so strong, they're so powerful, they're so well-built, they're so defensible that we could put the blind and lame up on the walls to push you back, and they would be successful. David, your, your army's so pathetic that we could put a bunch of blind men with bows and arrows, and they would knock you out, right? That's how impenetrable they thought they were. Nevertheless, David takes the stronghold. And we're not given a ton of detail into how David conquered Jerusalem, even if we want, might want some additional detail. We're only told that the key to victory over Jerusalem was the water shaft, the water shaft. Now, it's a little unclear exactly how David achieves his victory, but an ancient city's greatest vulnerability during a siege was the ongoing need for fresh water. You could thirst them out, so to speak. So ancient cities would tunnel fresh water into the city, and they would attempt to conceal where it is they were funneling the water from. So archaeologists believe that the water shaft that David used is what archaeologists have discovered, and is today called Warren's Shaft, named after the man who discovered it. So it's a 50-foot shaft carved through stone, sourcing water from the nearby Gihon Spring. So David took the city of Jerusalem in one of two ways. One, he cut the water source, which accelerated the siege and caused the Jebusites to surrender quickly. Or, and I think what probably happened, is that the men gathered at the water shaft, they climbed through it and infiltrated the stronghold from within. Either way, the conquest of Jerusalem was a resounding victory for David. David flips the mocking of the Jebusites back on them using their own self-designation as being the lame and the blind. So, so in the text, David isn't insinuating that he hates handicapped people, so don't misunderstand him. Only that David hates the Jebusites. <laughs> David is the king who crushes God's people. So the conquest of Jerusalem allows David to move Israel's capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. David had conquered the Zion of the Jebusites for himself. So the name Zion is an important one in the Old Testament. And it one that kind of changes in reference over the developing Old Testament. Initially, Zion refers to the mountain stronghold of the Jebusites, where David makes his house. And in later usage, Zion in the prophetic literature can refer to the entire city of Jerusalem, or it can even refer more generally to the people of God collectively. But the next few years describe the ongoing building up as, J as Jerusalem becomes David's capital and David's house, and David's greatness is increasingly recognized even by the Gentiles, as the king of Tyre provides cedar trees and craftsmen for David to build his house in Jerusalem. Let's pick up reading in verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. So David's kingdom 
is flourishing, isn't it? Flourishing. Notice verse 12, though. I think that's a very important verse. David knew that it was the Lord who established his kingdom, and it was the Lord who exalted his kingdom. Now, why? Notice what David recognizes. Notice the end of the sentence. For the sake of his people Israel. God blessed David. He blessed his kingdom. He blessed his reign in order to bless his people. Why do we pray that Jesus's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, it's because we recognize this reality that the king's glory means good for us. As Jesus's kingdom prospers, so will we. As Jesus's kingdom advances, so will our joy, our pleasure, our gladness. And so Jesus is the king God had established, and he's the king that God is exalting. So this means that Jesus's kingdom deserves to be advanced, not yours. Jesus's will should be done, not yours. Jesus's name should be praised, not yours. And yet, by becoming servants of the blessed kingdom of the Son of God, laboring for the advancement and the glory of his name, it is for our sake. David's house is not only being built in a physical sense, but also in a familial sense as well. We are given another list of more sons and daughters born to David in Jerusalem. And the growing house of David, including his many children, but also his many wives and concubines, reminds us of both David's blessing and blemishes, his strength and his shortcoming. But the Lord is with David. His house grows strong. The Philistines are threatened by him. And so in the early years of David's reigns, the Philistines rallied together to defeat the emerging kingdom of David. And while David's conquest of Jerusalem is largely framed in the text as David's victory, the crushing of the Philistines is emphasized as God's doing. The Lord conquers the Philistines. Let's read about it in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, and he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. What we see happen in this skirmish against the Philistines is a reversal of the battle of Aphek. At that battle, if you remember early on in 1 Samuel, Israel is under the leadership of the judge Eli. And they go to fight the Philistines only to be slaughtered and to have the Ark of the Covenant captured. But now it's God's king who is on the throne and who is leading God's army. And as the Philistines gather in the valley for battle, David, David consults the Lord. And here's yet another example of David, God's king, humbly inquiring of the Lord before he acts. Shall I go up against the Philistines? David asks the Lord. And the Lord responds in the positive. Go up. For I will surely give the Philistines into your hands. And there, at that battle, the Lord broke through the Philistines like a flood. And this time, 
Instead of the Philistines capturing the Ark of God, like at Aphek, the reversal happens. The fleeing Philistines leave behind their idols on the battlefield. Whose God is being captured now? And what does David do with the Philistine POWs? Well, according to 1 Chronicles, David commanded the idols to be burned. But the Philistines were stubborn people. You might be stubborn. A lot of us are stubborn and arrogant. One beat down wasn't enough for them. They wanted a second one. And so let's keep reading in verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. These battles against the Philistines demonstrate that David is the king who inquires and obeys the word of God. The Philistines rallied together for another battle. Perhaps David in his cockiness could have just marched in without consulting the Lord, but he doesn't do it. He inquires of the Lord a second time, and this time the Lord says, not go up, but don't go up, go around and flank them. And when you hear the marching troops, go out and fight them. And what does David do? He obeys the voice of the Lord. The Lord says, go, he goes. The Lord says, not go, he doesn't go. David is the king who says, not my will, but your will be done. And so David does as the Lord commanded him. And of course, victory resulted as the Lord crushed the Philistines. And it's at this point in 2 Samuel, we begin to wonder, how can things get any better than this? David is the king. He is a king who obeys the word of God. There's a new capital city in Jerusalem that's thriving and growing and expanding and prospering. David's house grows strong. The Philistines are on their heels. The Jebusites are out of the land. Israel is united. The dawning of David's kingdom seems to radiate with the morning light of God's blessing. And from the reign of his rule, the earth flourishes and sprouts. The overflowing blessing of David's rule at this point reminds us of the greater blessing to come from Jesus' rule. Jesus is the king to whom we must bend our knees as happy subjects of his forever kingdom. And God has blessed his king to bless his people. The Lord has blessed us in Christ. When we come to Jesus with repentance and faith, and when we confess our need for him, we are granted entrance into God's kingdom. And through Jesus, we are welcomed freely by faith There are demands of being a kingdom citizen. Jesus is the king, and God's people submit to his word. Jesus demands we repent. He calls us to pick up our cross. He tells us to put to death our sin. He summons us to be holy as the Lord is holy. He orders us to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. And yet, this Jesus at the same time says, his yoke is easy and light. How can this be? How can the cross-carrying demands of kingdom citizenship, of discipleship, how can that at the same time be easy and light? Well, the burden of discipleship is easy because Christ has borne the burden of our sins and now strengthens us by his spirit to carry out the demands of discipleship. Not only that, but it is a blessing for our souls to be under the authority of Jesus. It is a joy to be at his command. 
The slave of Christ finds the task pleasurable, even if it means we're presently under affliction because we love our king and he has saved us. The Lord Jesus rules for our sake to bless us and to have the radiance of his glory shine upon us. So friend, don't don't begrudge the lordship of Christ, but instead recognize his good rule. And remember, his kingdom's advancement brings the blessing of God upon you. And so as we see David's kingdom foreshadow the kingdom of Christ, we see that David is intent that his city, his capital, is not only the political hub of the nation, the center of his political power, but it ought to also be the epicenter of God's glorious presence on earth. So David will take the Ark of the Covenant out of obscurity and bring it into Jerusalem. And the Lord will dwell with his king and with his people. But the Ark of the Covenant, though, doesn't arrive without an important, deadly reminder of how dangerous it is for sinful men and women to come into the presence of a holy God. Let's read in verse 1 of chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a sacred piece of furniture that symbolized God's glory and presence in Israel. It was his footstool, so to speak. As he dwelt high in the heavens and his feet rested on the Ark, dwelling with his people. So the last time we saw the Ark of the Covenant in Samuel was back at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Because after the Lord terrorized the Philistines who had captured the, uh, captured the ark at the Battle of Aphek, they sent the ark back to Israel on a cart. We got to get rid of this thing. And so the ark was returned to a Levite town of Beth Shemesh. But you remember, they mishandled the ark, and the Lord struck many dead for their mishandling. So one thing to be rid of the ark is this Levite town passes the ark to Kiriath-Jerim. The city was also known and perhaps came to be known as Baal Judah. So the ark was kept in the house of Abinadab since the time of Samuel's judgeship. Saul didn't want anything to do with it, apparently. So with David wanting to relocate the ark to the capital, the house of Abinadab begins to prepare for its transportation. And Abinadab had two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. And they prepare for the transport And as we do, we can already sense that disaster is afoot. For one, they decide to transport the ark on a cart. Sure, it's a new cart, but the last time we saw the ark of the covenant on a cart, the Philistines were trying to get rid of it. And it's not a good sign that Uzzah and Ahio are following the transportation protocols of the Philistines. But according to the law, the ark was not to be transported by cart but by poles running through rings on the side of the ark, and it was to be carried by walking on the shoulders of those who carried it. So I don't think the Levites had compliance safety officers in those days. 
But Uzzah and Ohio would have been slapped with a major OSHA violation by putting the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. Their carelessness has put them in grave danger. Let's read what happens next in verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. What begins as a triumphant moment of joy? David is together with all of Israel, 30,000 of them. They go and get the ark and they're preparing for a parade to Jerusalem with instruments and songs and singing and gladness and happiness. Spiritual revival is happening. Everybody's coming together, worshiping the Lord, David's kingdom. Everything's going great. This is the sort of thing every pastor longs for to see in his community, in his church, people praising God, traveling together. And then disaster strikes. The oxen stumbles. The cart rocks. The Ark of the Covenant nearly topples off the cart, and Uzzah almost instinctively raises his hand to try to stabilize the Ark to prevent it from falling. And then he drops dead. Uzzah's death surprises us, doesn't it? Why? Why such an extreme punishment for what is a well-meaning gesture? Uzzah was only trying to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling. He had good intentions. He wanted to honor the ark, not defile it. He wanted to worship the Lord of the ark, not desecrate his footstool. But yet, by his carelessness and disobedience, the Lord put him to death instantly. I think Uzzah's death is a theological Warshock test. By looking at it and seeing how you respond, it reveals your theology. It exposes your doctrine of sin. Are human beings really that sinful? Simply touching the Ark of the Covenant warns death? Exposes your doctrine of God. Is God just and right to give out capital punishment here? You see, if you're appalled at Uzzah's death, it reveals more about you than you realize. Because the testimony of Scripture is clear. The Lord was completely justified to put him to death. The law of God was clear. Uzzah knew it. No human being should touch the ark. The Lord is holy. We are sinful. The whole system of Israel's worship prescribed by the Lord and given them the law, why does it exist? Well, it's because of this delicate reality of a holy God dwelling among a sinful people. Israel could only approach the Lord in his presence with the blood of atonement, with priestly intercession that the sin of humanity put a cosmic gulf between God and us. So to get too close to the Lord, stained with our sinful hands, it deserves a death sentence. Uzzah's death is a reminder to all of us that God is transcendent. He is pure. He is marvelous in his holiness. And it's also a reminder of our fallenness, how stained and sinful we are, and how condemned we are before a holy God. Uzzah's quick and impulsive action 
causes him to commit the grave sin of presumption. As the late R.C. Sproul memorably said, Uzzah assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. And because he did not follow God's instruction when he transported the ark, he put himself in a vulnerable situation to violate God's word. Uzzah reminds us that good intentions are no replacement for obedience. You follow God as you assess best, assuming that your good intentions will make you acceptable to him. Friend, we don't follow Jesus as we think best. We follow Jesus as scripture directs, which means that if we hope to live rightly before our king and our God, we must know his word. We must be Bible people who live in accordance with the commands of scripture. And listen, ignorance of God's word is no excuse for disobeying God's word. Many Christian lives have spun into disarray because they believe their good intentions trumped God's clear command. We slide into a slippery slope of moral behavior going outside the bounds of Scripture, but we mean well. When we sin by acting rudely or aggressively or arrogant in our speech, what do we say? We defend ourselves and say, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, he does, and that's the problem. Right? Good intentions are often either just a ploy to conceal your negligent ignorance of God's word, or it's just outright cover for rebellious disobedience. And such presumptions can even happen among church leaders. Many church leaders have pioneered, invented, out-of-the-box programs, drifting their church into error, even though their strategy plainly contradicts what Scripture requires. They've got good intentions. They want their church to grow. They want people to get saved. But their strategy contradicts the scriptures. Many pastors introduce well-meaning, creative, and, and ingenious sort of plans and strategies in the church's worship only to cut off the authority of scripture and regulating the church's worship. I think Uzzah's sins remind us of our defilement before a holy God but it also reminds us of our tendency, a sinful tendency to serve God as we think best, only to foolishly disregard God's word. The sudden and unexpected death of Uzzah rained on David's parade, quite literally, which just goes to remind us that the Lord will happily interrupt our happy plans to remind us of his holiness. After Uzzah drops dead, David begins to have second thoughts about bringing this ark into Jerusalem. Let's read what he does in verse eight. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Notice, notice David's response. David was angry and David was afraid. Why was David angry? Well, the text says it was because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. Perhaps David was just like many of us who sees the Lord's response to Uzzah's action as severe or extreme. 
Perhaps David was angry that his plans are ruined. He's got this joyous parade of religious revival and God brings it to a screeching halt and it becomes a funeral service. We're not entirely sure what drove David's anger, but the Lord did not act as David wanted him to act in that moment. Have you ever grown angry with God? Our anger at God normally stems when God fails to meet the expectations we set for him. When he fails to follow our script, our plan, or when he acts in a way that startles us or surprises us. But friend, the Lord is fearsome. He is good, but he is not safe. And the flash of divine wrath that turned a happy parade into a funeral service reminds us of why we should all fear the Lord. We mustn't grow angry at God when we cannot control him any more than we would at a lion who devours his prey. The Lord cannot be tamed by our human expectations. No whip or hoop can protect the lion tamer from getting eaten by the beast. The Lord is wild and he is free. He is a God who will vindicate his holiness in violent wrath against those who defile it. And so David's anger shifts to another emotion. It goes from anger to fear. David was afraid. Is the Lord too dangerous to bring into Jerusalem? Do I, the king of Judah, want to live alongside the lion of Judah? So David protests, how can the ark of God come to me? If this God, this holy God is the God who would strike down Uzzah, do I want the ark of the covenant in my backyard? Will the proximity of the Lord's holiness bring ruin to me and to my kingdom instead of blessing? So David begins to have second thoughts. And so he stores the ark in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittites. But the ark's presence blesses the house over the next three months. And seeing how the Lord blesses Obed-Edom's house, David's anxieties begin to get relieved. And he continues with his plan to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now, perhaps you're a little bit like David this morning. You're hesitant to invite a holy God into your home by repenting of your sin. By putting your faith in Jesus for your salvation, the Holy Spirit of God, the same God that struck down Uzzah, will dwell within you. But if you are hesitant to do so out of fear, let me encourage you to look around at other Christians, even in this room. See how the Lord has blessed them. Sure, they might not be blessed with new cars and lavish vacations, but look at their life. Look at their joy in their marriage and in their children. Look at their joy even in suffering. Look at their contentment and thanksgiving they seem to have in all circumstances. Look at the love they have for one another, the peace they have for one another. The blessing that you see evident in the lives of God's people, that comes by God's spirit who dwells within them. And so let me invite you, you need not fear the Lord this morning. Come to Jesus. Come to the Son of God who will make you right before God, who will forgive you of your sins, and who will put you in a right relationship with the Lord so that you too might be blessed by the indwelling spirit of God. And so King David resumes the parade. After a three-month delay, Israel's victorious king then begins to take on the role of a priest, leading the people of God in worship. Let's read in verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod so that so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Here is David, the priestly king. He cloaks himself in the garment of a priest, the linen ephod, and he organizes the sacrifices offered to the Lord. Every time the ark moves six steps, notice they start transporting it correctly, by the way, right? And with the blast of the horn and the merriment of music, David begins to dance before the Lord. He prances, he leaps, he twirls before the Lord. Yahweh, the God of Israel, comes into his city, and David leads the procession with extravagant praise to God. David's actions are so extravagant, his praise so intense, his worship so extreme. His inhibition seems so abandoned that his wife, Michael, who is Saul's daughter, begins to despise him for it. And before we despise Michael for despising David, wouldn't we do the same thing? Yesterday, England had their coronation of King Charles. Could we imagine Charles hopping out of his state coach to lead the people of England to the coronation with cartwheels and jumping jacks? How would the people of England react to the king who, after his anointing, begins to do Irish dancing on the floor of Westminster Abbey? You and every other highbrow British citizen would lament how undignified. And yet David, the priest king, continues to lead his people in this way, in extravagant worship. Peace offerings are given. Burnt offerings ascend to the heaven. And David, the priestly king, blesses the people of God, and he gives them a feast a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins. (coughs) We can't help here, but again, see the foreshadowing of how the kingly and priestly offices come together in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the king from God's lineage, or from the lineage of David, and he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus not only rules, but he leads us in joyous praise to his heavenly father. And Jesus makes himself undignified, doesn't he? He humiliates himself, even to the point of death, embracing the cross for the joy set before him. And at the cross of Christ, our priest king provides a peace offering and a burnt offering, one not of bulls and of goats, but of his own flesh. And through the humiliation of the cross, Jesus invites all of us to worship the Lord as we come to him by faith. And so we feast on the provision of his flesh the feast that he has provided for us. As we look to the cross, church, behold your undignified king. 
witness the sacrifice of praise. Marvel at Jesus as he brings us into the presence of God. What a king we have. What a priest that the crisis of Uzzah's death and its reminder of our sin and our judgment finds its remedy in a priestly king who prepares the way for us to come into the presence of God. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He has cloaked us with his righteousness so we can parade freely in the presence of God without fear. Because the Lord is deserving of all praise. He is the holy creator of the universe. He is our maker and our savior. He is our provider and our deliverer. He is our covenant-keeping God who abounds in steadfast love and who joins himself in covenant with his people. And so no wonder then, David, knowing this God, leads Israel with such exuberant praise. But extravagant devotion to the Lord can come across as excessive and even undignified in its zeal. If you live your life in praise to the God who is worthy of it, in such devoted, sacrificial, unhindered praise to God, people will deride you for it. Let's read what happens in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. As David returns home to bless his household after this wonderful feast of celebration, Michael, who had been watching her husband's extreme behavior, rebukes her husband. How the king of Israel honored himself today. David's prancing in the streets, stripped of his royal garments with a thin white linen ephod, was contemptible. David, you're the king, not kingly. You should be set apart in your royal robes. Why would you, David, frolic around and prance around like a little commoner? You're the king. Michael has too much of her father in her, doesn't she? Her story is a tragic one. First, she was used as a political pawn by her father, stripped from David to be married to another man. Then she was taken from her second husband, only to be reunited with David. And after this conflict, we're told that she had no child the day of her death. We're not given the reasons for her barrenness. It was either because this long-standing rift was created between David and Michael, thus giving no opportunity for the conception of children, or her womb was closed as an act of divine judgment. But Michael's reaction reveals her overinflation of David's dignity and her undervaluing of the praiseworthiness of God. David's response to Michael, I think, would have pierced her heart. Michael, the Lord chose me as king. He cut off your father. He killed your brothers in judgment. The Lord has chosen me and blessed me and taken me from Bethlehem and put me on the throne. I didn't do this. 
I didn't achieve this success. I'm not worthy of these blessings. God has done it. The people of God are flourishing through me because of God's hand, not mine. I'm not going to take any credit for any of this. I'm a nobody. I'm a shepherd from Bethlehem. I will celebrate the Lord and lead my people to do the same. The Lord is worthy of all our praise. And then David continues and says, I will make myself yet more contentable than this. I'll be more based in your eyes. David tells her, if you think my behavior today is undignified and shameful, just wait as you watch me rule in the fear of the Lord. I will do so in complete devotion to my praiseworthy God. And David begins to reign a united Israel. We have seen the blessings of the Lord pour out on his people. God channels his blessings to his people through his chosen king. The monarchy of David points to the kingdom of God and to the king of kings. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our God and king. And will you, this morning, will you give praise to Jesus alone for your life and your salvation? Will you make yourself a fool in the eyes of the world to worship him? Will you gladly embrace the, the contempt of a watching culture who will mock you? Will you become abased in the eyes of your neighbor to give God the praise he deserves from your life? Will you worship the Lord even when the world hates you for it? When they think you're too zealous, when they think you're too committed, too over the top, too devoted, or will you say to your family and friends, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes because my God deserves all the praise I have to give him. We have every reason to praise him this morning. As we consider the blessings that have come to us through Jesus Christ, we have every reason to worship the God of our salvation. We have every reason this morning to become fools for Christ's sake. Will you despise the Lord and his people this morning, or will you worship him? Will you join David in celebrating our praiseworthy God this morning? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see the glory of your kingdom, the glory of you, our king. Lord, we pray that all would gladly repent and submit to your kingship and to the blessings that come from your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.